0: But they're unlikely to all reach a common assessment when they sit down in the situation room. And Trump will ultimately have to decide, is he going to always side with General Flynn or is he going to be open-minded when Mattis pushes back on certain positions?
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in New York today and we're joined in Washington by a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the table. Julie Smith. Julie is Senior Fellow and Director of the Strategy and Statecraft Program at the Center for New American Security. She's also an advisor at Beacon Global Strategies. FP columnist Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, Professor at Georgetown University and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, is also with us, as is, calling in from a tiny island off the coast of Maine, F.P. writer Tom Ricks. He writes the daily column Best Defense for F.P. and has covered the U.S. military for 25 years, writing for The Wall Street Journal and for The Washington Post. His upcoming book, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom, will be released in May 2017. If you have any podcast ideas, questions, or comments, please drop us a line at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from Brooklyn, and from Maine, we had the following conversation. So, guys seem like we have uncanny timing here, a little secret to the listener, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, when President-elect Donald Trump has just named yet another general to his cabinet. So as of right now, we have General Michael Flynn, National Security Advisor, General James Mattis, Secretary of Defense, General John Kelly. Nominated now as secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. We also have a West Point graduate and apparent underachiever, since he's not a general, um, running the CIA. Tom, you've made generals your business. Should we be worried by this? Should we read something into this? I mean, isn't this the same Donald Trump who during the campaign said the generals don't know anything and he knows better? What's going on?
2: Well, number one, I don't think you can take anything that Trump said during the campaign and derive any information from it. I think that that's just null and void. That was a tornado of bullshit, and he didn't mean any of it. He says what he pl- thinks pleases the crowd. Uh, and I think he's going to keep on doing that. I think one of the interesting things about this government is going to be that Trump is basically going to continue to campaign. He sees his job as riling up. The American people and manipulating their anger to support his interests. I think he's going to leave government to other people, which is actually kind of good news. So we're going to have this junta, several generals out there, and I think probably more to come. Uh, and the main recommendation to Trump seems to be that most of these guys got fired or pushed out by the Obama administration. I think what that shows partly is Donald Trump doesn't know a lot. Uh, He's a profoundly ignorant man, but he does know what he saw on TV is that Mattis got crosswise with the Obama administration. Flynn was pushed out. Uh, Petraeus was let go after some personal problems, having an affair and disclosing uh, classified information to his girlfriend. Uh, It's going to be interesting, though, because these people have very different views. Mattis is a kind of traditional interventionist. Uh, Flynn seems to me a very erratic man, pro-Putin, not seem, seemingly as concerned with some of the uh, issues about Eastern Europe. So I think that we're going to see a few explosions. My bet is the first person to leave will be Flynn.
1: So, Rosa, you walked the hallways of the Pentagon at one point, encountering some of these characters, no doubt. What else should we know about them that Donald Trump apparently does not know about them?
3: Well, I think Donald Trump may not have realized that for the most part these guys are not ideological at all, and they they tend to take a pretty common sense approach to issues and not be, with the exception of General Flynn, uh, not be super prone to sort of random outbursts. Uh, you know that they are they've been in positions where they know that their their off the cuff remarks end up getting taken very seriously and having real implications. So I think he may I think he may end up being disappointed. To the extent, I mean, Tom raises the interesting question whether Trump actually has any views of his own whatsoever anyway. And if he does have no views of his own, then he won't be disappointed because he won't care what his cabinet officials tell him one way or the other. Uh, on the other hand, if he actually intends to implement some of his crazier campaign promises, he may be disappointed as perhaps he already was when he asked uh, General uh, Mattis, for instance about waterboarding and torture, and Mattis, to Trump's apparent surprise and disappointment, expressed a uh, lack of enthusiasm for the practice. Um, so, you know, that's—as I, I, as Tom says, this is not politics as usual. I mean, normally, I would say, gee, yeah, uh, do I want to have a general in charge of Homeland Security? Not—the optics of that are not great. And, but then when you think, okay, well, what are the alternatives here— uh, realistically speaking, uh, who are the who are the other possibilities? You start thinking, well, actually, some non-ideological people who are competent in running large organizations is probably the best we can do.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. One of the other choices he was considering was the author and chief proponent of the famous Muslim Registry, uh, but these people have all gotten crosswise with the president once already, Julie. Um, do you agree with Tom's assessment? Flynn's the next one to go. You have a lot of experience with the NSC, uh, or do you think somebody else is likely to get uh, get on the wrong side of the uh, tweeter in chief?
0: Well, it's hard to know or really predict who would be the first person out the door. Um, I, what we do know is that Trump doesn't really appear to enjoy being challenged, and a lot of these guys are known for speaking their mind and I guess he's going to have to determine which one he wants to side with. They're not all going to agree. They come from a similar background, obviously all having a very prestigious military service and background. And I, I know both General Mattis and General Kelly, I, I think very highly of them individually. But they're unlikely to all reach a common assessment when they sit down in the situation room. And Trump will ultimately have to decide, is he going to always side with General Flynn or? Is he going to be open-minded when Mattis pushes back on certain positions? Um, It's probably not going to be the smooth sailing uh, that he anticipates. The bigger question, I guess, is will Trump even be sitting in the situation room? I mean, we don't know how much time he's going to be spending in Washington, how much time he's going to be actually dedicating to running the government. Uh, He may delegate large parts of this either to Pence or put most— Post these decisions in the hands of Mike Flynn uh, and leave it at that and not hold as many National Security Council meetings as, say, your typical president would. So... I don't know. I I have a lot of concerns. I mean, the bigger concern for me with all of these generals really is the fact that you don't get a diversity of viewpoints. You don't get a different network with each individual. You don't get a different set of experiences. You don't have someone that, say, has an NGO network versus a Wall Street network versus a media network. You're really bringing in people that tend to draw from the same set of experts. And what you want in the situation room is people that can draw from a variety of sets of experiences, exposure to different tools in the U.S. National Toolkit, uh, networks of people that they can reach out to in times of need. You want people that know the private sector well, that know the NGO community well, that know uh, foreign counterparts well, and you're not necessarily going to get that uh, with the current list that stands before us.
1: So, Tom, let's, let's try to search for the silver lining in all of this. Uh, Or in fact, let's try to look at it uh, from uh, some alternative perspective. Because the reality is, I mean, Julie just mentioned that she knows Mattis and she knows Kelly and she has respect for them. Uh, I was talking just earlier today with somebody who knows Pompeo very well at uh, CIA, who is a West Point graduate and has a lot of military experience, who says Pompeo is an extremely intelligent guy and very capable. And that in fact, Trump may get from these people the best advice he's getting, since the rest of his cabinet seems to be stocked with ideological politicians or plutocrats and a lot of people who have no government experience, where these generals actually do have some government experience. So do do you think there's a possibility that the good governance award in this administration may may have its origins from people who uh, cut their teeth at the Pentagon?
2: I kind of cringe to say it, uh, but yeah, I I think we might. I think normally I would never want this many generals in the cabinet, but these are not normal times. I think our democracy is in great danger. I think even the basic strength of the U.S. government as an operating entity is in great danger. Increasingly, though, I do think Trump is basically going to tell these guys, you figure it out and you tell me the policy, and I'll go out and get support for it because that's what I'm good at. I'll sell the Trump brand out there and you guys, you know, run the government. So the image I have, the ideal image, if this all works right, is General General Dunford, the Marine who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, will work with Mattis against Flynn. Basically, Dunford will hold Flynn's arms and Mattis will punch him.
1: Well, that's an image that I, I, I'd like to... Save her a minute, but but <laughs> let me ask you one more question before I I turn to Rosa. You you mentioned that Dunford's a Marine, Kelly's a Marine, Mattis is a Marine. The the Marines seem to have taken um, the the executive branch of the government. Does that matter? Does the, the their background in the Marine Corps matter?
2: It does, kind of. Uh, and I share Julie's concern about the limited sort of networks they'll have. Not only are these guys all Marines. They're all from the 1st Marine Division. Mattis commanded the division. Dunford was a regimental commander in the division. John Kelly was assistant division commander. Uh, These guys have all worked for Mattis before. Uh, It's a a very odd situation. That said, these guys are also unusual. Mattis is one of the most impressive generals I've ever met. He's one of the better generals we've had. One Marine I know called him the best uh, Marine general since the Korean War which is extremely high praise. So, yeah, to make the best of a bad situation, these are good generals. Uh, It's got to make the Army wonder, uh, what are they, chopped liver, that the only guy they've got uh, in the running is General Flynn, who is erratic and is also not a combat leader. He's an intelligence officer, or as they call him in the military, a weenie. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there was there was a uh, Dave Petraeus was in the running for the State Department, although it really really seems unlikely that yet another general would figure into this mix. Um the the people that I think are are going to be the most miffed are the Navy, who I, the, all the sort of high level admirals I've ever known sort of think of themselves as especially blessed in this kind of policy outlook compared to the Army, uh, the Air Force, or the Marine Corps. Um, but Rosa, let me let me turn away from this for, for, for a second and or take a slightly different perspective on it. We can debate the merits of, of of having all these military leaders in there. But there's something else I notice about this government that is coalescing at the moment. it's the military, it's ideological politicians, and it's plutocrats. The group that really seems to have been edged out by Trump, our technocrats, are Washington policy wonks. I was in the Clinton administration. The, you know, we celebrated policy wonks. The Obama administra- administration celebrated policy wonks, but you know, so did the administrations of George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. There were a lot of folks who were policy professionals who had a lot of traction and high positions in the midst of all of this thing. But Trump has this kind of bias. And I you know, I look at it and I kinda of wonder if the establishment he was running against wasn't actually the Wall Street establishment, it wasn't the military establishment, it wasn't the political establishment, it was the intellectual establishment. And that his message is, you know, Trump to technocrats drop dead.
3: Yeah, I I, I think we're getting that message loud and clear here. I you know, absolutely I mean, he said a lot of things during the campaign. um he, as you said earlier, he's very dismissive of the wisdom of generals in general, even though he's now seems to be determined to surround himself by uh, marines at least um, and one erratic army guy. but he no, I mean, he clearly is deeply resentful and deeply hostile to the idea of expertise. I mean, he's a he's a prime representative of a phenomenon that has been, Apparent, I think it's always had a thread of it in American culture, and and really accelerated in the last couple of decades. Sort of the declining respect for even the idea of authority and expertise, uh, uh, and the notion that elites, the educated, the the technocrats, you know, are are just uh, don't really understand what's going on, and we just need to kind of you know get rid of them all, send them off to the guillotine, and you know, it will be interesting to see what happens um, because. You sort of can't govern without them either, and will you know what level of disaster we have in the next four years will partly depend on whether he manages to sort of salvage some piece of the federal bureaucracy and harness it to actually put his policies forward or not. Julie,
1: you're a wonk. Admit it. Just say I'm a wonk. You know, you <laughs> I'm can a proud
0: member of the wonk community. Yes, I wear it with pride.
1: <laughs> right, we're, we're, and you're a le- actually you're a leader of the wonk community. How does this make you feel?
0: Well, it's disheartening because... You know, I, everybody loves the slogan of change. Change sounds great. Obama campaigned on change. Trump campaigned on change. Everyone wants to be the change candidate. And you can do that at the top level. You can put in uh, people in the cabinet positions that maybe haven't spent 30 years in Washington, although he's he doesn't even seem to be doing that right now. But the reality is that a level or two or six below those cabinet members, if you don't have somebody who has some experience running the government, you're going to find that all of those great ideas you have simply can't be realized. And it's not just the what. It's what do we do about ISIS? What do we do about Russia? What do we do about China? It's the how. How do you get a massive bureaucracy to turn and to function. And you have to have people in there uh, that have had a turn at the crank. And um, I just can't imagine at this point, how they're going to do this without relying on a couple of the folks that signed the never Trump letters, or maybe they didn't, but they're still being rejected because they're so called elites, foreign policy elites, Um, But I just I don't I don't see a deep bench around some of these people, you know, Flynn isn't the type of guy that has a mass following. Mattis has a pretty big network and he'll try to pull in uh, some interesting people. Along the way. The question is Will the White House let him? How much control, for example, does the White House or Trump and Pence want to exert over the decisions Mattis will have to make about, for example, who to put in as Undersecretary for Policy? Is that a Mattis choice? And in that case, he may very well want to turn to somebody with deep experience. Uh, Or is he going to get a signal from Trump and company that they'd rather go grab somebody out of Idaho uh, that, you know, as on a family business for 20 years, and they want to give that person a try. But I, I, we've seen this movie before. We've seen administrations try to put in folks that have virtually no experience running government offices, agencies, what have you. And you find they exit very quickly. I mean, they rarely last more than a
2: year. My guess from here is, is that um, whoever they name undersecretary for policy, if they foisted somebody on Mattis... Undersecretary for policy Corey Shack Is going to wind up Running the Pentagon anyways We all know
3: that <laughs> that's, that's what I keep Suggesting to people You but, heard it here Yeah <laughs>
1: so, so And she keeps saying She's not going Although she you does. notice She's not sitting She's not sitting in On this conversation But she can run The, the Pentagon From the ER she As can. far as I'm concerned I, I, I nominate <laughs> her um,
2: With her left <laughs> hand yeah, No no and In fact this is
1: where We're intending to run The world from anyway But Tom um, You know As you look out at this group of people, and picking up on Julie's point, you know, it's one of the things that is most stunning about the the group that has been picked so far is how little experience they've had running the civilian side operations of the U.S. government in any way. Rance Priebus, the chief of staff, no experience. Steve Bannon, this advisor, no experience in that regard. Mike Flynn, you know, no experience in that regard. Ben Carson... I mean, I don't even know what planet Ben Carson grew up on, but no experience in that regard. One after another, you have people in charge of the executive branch of the U.S. government who've never worked in the executive branch of the U.S. government before. Does that matter? Or is this the refreshing change that all those Trump voters wanted? And this is going to be a new age. And... They're just going to walk in, and, and the culture of Wall Street and the culture of, of, of the 1st Marine Division are going to transform the U.S. government and make it work better.
2: I think you put your finger on something really important here, and I hadn't thought of it quite this way before. There's lots of splits inside these Trump people. Um, you know, Putin being a great example. Are you pro-Putin or anti-Putin? What to, do about, what to do about Iran or become isolationist? There are huge divides that these people are going to start having big fights over but the biggest might be that fundamental question of whether you believe in the u.s government i think people like steve bannon would be happy to see the government almost come to a halt to freeze and that's a huge contrast to people like mattis and kelly who have spent their lives getting government paychecks and in some way military people fundamentally believe in government they've been part of it for decades and they have sat with civilians and talked about policy and how to formulate it and how to implement it. And I think the implementation is going to be the key thing. This is where Julie's point is so important. A lot of these people, and I think Trump, might think all you have to do is give a speech, and then it kind of magically happens. And you guys know better than I do that the hardest thing in the world is not coming up with a policy it's coming up with a policy and implementing
3: so it. So Julie and I are sitting here in our tiny little DuPont Circle studio rolling our eyes at each other because we, of course, are both veterans of jobs in the Obama administration where I I think it's – I'm not giving away any secrets if I say that at times there was a little bit of a problem of uh, the White House, uh, the Obama White House thinking that giving a speech is a way to solve a problem. And, and, and I think that – I think every president has some version of this difficulty, which is that, you know, most of our presidents have not come – with executive branch experience. They, you know, they're governors or something else, and they come in, and they don't really understand this this giant behemoth known as the federal executive branch, uh, which is huge and complicated and inefficient and wasteful and so forth, but is also full of incredible talent and a lot of levers through which you can get stuff done, but only if you understand, you know, where those levers are and how you pull them and what works and what doesn't work. President Obama had the same issue, you know, that that he stopped his early uh, NSC with people who didn't have a tremendous amount of experience. And there were plenty of examples of speeches. I mean, just to cite one, his his Cairo speech in 2009, trying to usher in a sort of new era of relationships with the Middle East, where a lot of promises were made about various forms of economic and cultural collaboration. Uh, But there was no mechanism or plan for how to turn those into realities. And no one in the White House really knew how to do that. And so a, a, an opportunity to get a huge amount of goodwill was sort of squandered and, and turned into the reverse. And I think the Trump administration, you know, is likely to be a really extreme case of that, uh, you know, that of, of just not not having any particular interest in getting the system to work. The only thing I would say, though, of course, now that we're in the era of fake news anyway— is I'm not, I think Obama cared, you know, I think President Obama was frustrated and baffled when his speeches did not get translated into implementable policy. Uh, I suspect that for Donald Trump, I'm not sure he does care, uh, because it is all very much about theater and about what can you tweet tonight, and it may not be true, but half the people who read it will believe it anyway, you know, even if it's contradicted the next day. Maybe he just doesn't care. You know, He's not interested in whether the government works one way or the other, it doesn't matter. And he's definitely not interested on protocol also. It's
0: not just process of getting the bureaucracy wheels to to churn along there. The protocol piece has also been thrown out the window. They're not using state ops to make calls. They're not racking and stacking calls in any particular order. They're not offering readouts of foreign calls. They're not taking the press when they head out the door. I mean, all the things we're just used to in terms of understanding how government functions. And by the way, all the things our allies are used and our adversaries are used to seeing in terms of the day-to-day grind have also been chucked out the window. So it it, it sounds and probably feels to them great. They're just they 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 pride themselves in tossing protocol off out the window, but as I think they've already come to learn, there are real consequences in doing that.
1: Well so Tom, you know uh Rosa talks about the Obama administration's impulse to solve every problem with speech, but you know, Trump has taken this the natural step further into the kind of reductio odd crazy-ass bullshit department where everything can be solved with a tweet. And 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 you know, in in that respect, if you if if you think you can conduct foreign policy by Twitter, who needs the rest of the government anyway? Uh, You know, who needs a briefing or a readout when everything is done publicly and in 140 characters? That probably will work great, right, Tom?
2: Well, that's how he got to be president, and that's the interesting thing. Uh, Again and again, we underestimated the the power of the Trump juggernaut, and we may be underestimating it now. This guy doesn't care about what we care about, what we were trained to think of as important. And guess what? A big chunk of the American people don't either. So I make this pledge to you, David, and to you, Julie, yes. and to you, Rosa. When they demand that the wonks, the policy wonks go down and register, I'll register right behind you.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Tom, for that gesture of solidarity.
1: Yeah, we really appreciate it from a guy who's already moved to Maine and is living on a lobster boat. Um, you know, the, we, we, know, we know you've got our, our, our back. Um there, there's so there's clearly another office. yeah, thank you, and we're for that by the way we're we're hundred percent for that there, but there's clearly another dimension of that, and we've touched upon it a little bit here, and in the last ten minutes we've got I'd like to touch upon it a little bit more um and that is of course, there is foreign policy um, and we now have an idea from Flynn and from mattis and from the the Kelly appointment to the degree to which that impacts immigration and 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 sort of counterterrorism on the domestic stage from Pompeo we're starting to get an idea of the world view of the Trump administration it's coming a little bit more in focus and it's a little bit troubling but i i'd like to you know i mean we seem to be in a weekly discussion about this and i don't want to bore the listeners but is there anything that this this constellation of generals tells you about how we might tackle let me just start with one, uh, Iran.
2: If I could um, jump in here, I think what you'll see with Mattis's voice is a, an instinct to stay with the nuclear agreement, but to lean on Iran more in terms of regional activity, uh, more vigorous special operations and other covert activities. Uh, more reassurance to allies, and probably even a more vigorous direct response to Iranian provocations in the Persian Gulf. Uh, that said, I think it's going to be more like Obama than not with Iran. I don't know where you guys have been on Russia in your discussions, but what I can't figure out is where this administration is going to come out on Russia. Is it pro-Putin or anti-Putin? Does it support Putin in Syria? And if so, where does that leave Israel? I'm just utterly puzzled by that.
1: Why would you have for a moment a thought that there's anybody who's anti-Putin in this mix?
2: Uh, Because I think that General Mattis is sane and has a sober understanding of the threat that Putin presents. I think General Dunford as chairman of the Joint Chiefs will back him up. I think a lot of whoever becomes secretary of state, unless there's this guy from ExxonMobil they're talking about, is likely to have a fairly traditional view of Russia, not this uh, crazy embrace of Putin that we've seen from some of the Trump camp.
3: I
0: think
1: by that's some in the yeah. Trump camp, you, you mean, mean Trump. Mean, you mean Trump. We mean
3: Trump.
2: <laughs> yes. Trump, Bannon. But honestly, I really I emphasize, I don't think Trump believes anything. I really don't. He Likes people who he thinks like him. He's loyal to people who he thinks are loyal to him. Um, Beyond that, he is an idiot.
1: (laughs) And there you have it. So, Julie, Russia?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with Tom on this one. I mean, I think that one's very hard to predict. I mean, we all heard Pence during the vice presidential debate, uh, and he was on a completely different track than everything Trump said during the campaign uh, and was concerned uh, about Russia in many ways. Um, and then was quickly thrown under the bus by Trump about a day later. But clearly, I, I, my guess is Dunford would, General Dunford, we already know his views on Russia. I think he and Mattis, as Tom noted, are going to line up um, and be alarmed by Russian aggression in its neighborhood and beyond. Somebody's got to tell Trump that the Russians are not particularly helpful on ISIL, and it's not worth selling Ukraine upriver uh, for that as part of that deal. Uh, and let's not forget their other voices in this. The Europeans, some of them would like to see the sanctions lifted on Russians. Some of them will not want to go that far. Uh, And certainly the countries in Central and Eastern Europe are going to be breaking out in hives if they hear that this administration is getting ready to get rid of the sanctions. Um, So that we'll have to see who the sex state is. And that may tell us if there's going to be a handful of people challenging Flynn and Trump on this. And and that one's going to be pretty interesting to watch. So I don't think we have a good idea on every issue. I think Tom's right on Iran. Um, But Russia in particular strikes me as a tough one.
1: Let me venture uh, an opinion here. And, Rosa, please respond to the opinion. Um, But I think this next Secretary of State, whoever it is, is going to be the least powerful Secretary of State since John Kerry.
3: I think – a lot depends right i mean i mean we're still i realize we're having the same conversation every week because there's so much that we just don't know yet and we'll we'll learn a lot in the first few months of the when tr- trump presidency um i think the you know in some ways the single best case scenario turns out would be that Tom turns out to be right, that Trump doesn't really care. He has no views that he really cares about. And he has a short attention span and isn't interested in running the government because running the government is very, very boring. And so he quickly delegates. Lynn implodes because Trump, you know, he offends absolutely everybody in the cabinet. And since it's harder to – Harder to deal with, you know, four angry generals than one angry general that Flynn gets ousted and then the remaining members of our well-qualified military junta are in charge, which is not totally ideal but is better than Donald Trump making day-to-day decisions. And uh, the grown-ups kind of keep things status quo for four years and then we have another election and hopefully the American people come to their senses and we get rid of Trump um, that's kind of best-case scenarios that he's, he's, he's so bored by the whole government thing that he turns it over to some grown-ups. That might not turn out to be the case, though. I, I, you know we, we might put in place a secretary of state. You know, if, if Rudy Giuliani is the secretary of state, then I hope the secretary of state is the least powerful secretary of state ever. You know, it, it, we have no idea. So we're all, we're all kind of just talking to be talking at this point because none of us know.
1: Well, I don't know about that there, Rosa. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I I think that may may be a bit of an overstatement since Donald Trump really doesn't show much aptitude for taking advice anyway. So that's a clue. And uh, most of the people that he's considering are people that he's not close to. So that's a clue. We actually know how that turns out most of the time. And many of them don't have a lot of bandwidth or depth on, on these issues. Well, here, here's uh, and... one
3: little tiny bright spot. Can I just mention, though, um, the teeniest, okay. tiniest bright spot? And this goes back before we got on the air. We Julie and I were talking about Comet Pizza here in Washington, D.C., which, which as you all probably know, uh, had an active shooter incident last week where... Some some guy who apparently was dumb enough uh, to believe every random insane fake news story that came his way uh, had become convinced by the bizarro Twitter claims that you know Hillary Clinton was running a ring of pedophiles in the back room of Comet Pizza, which is you know needless to say completely bonkers on multiple levels. Uh, and was and he was not only insane enough to believe this, but he was violent enough to think it was his job to you know take his gun and go and systematically search Comet Pizza looking for the pedophile ring. Luckily, uh, uh, although apparently shots were fired, he was apprehended by the police before anybody could get hurt. Um, But here's the one tiny piece of good news, right, because otherwise I know you might think, gee, that doesn't sound like good news, now does it, aside from the fact that he was apprehended. But one of the people who was responsible for disseminating the insane made-up story that there was a pedophile ring in the back room of Comet Pizza run by Hillary Clinton, of all people, was Mike Flynn's son, Uh, was tweeting this and and giving it credence. And he apparently, according to the New York Times at least, he has now been essentially fired and is no longer part of the transition team at all because – You know, even apparently the Trump team had just barely enough uh, sense of sanity and responsibility that they saw, okay, this is maybe going a little bit too far. So that's a tiny little bright spot. He's the son of somebody who has been the most powerful voice near Donald Trump. So that gives me the tiniest, most microscopic sliver of hope that maybe there is some desire not to be completely bananas.
1: Well I don't know Michael what Scott. you were drinking before you I don't know what you were drinking before you came here today Rosa um but please leave some in the studio so I can have it when <laughs> I get there um uh, the to notion make you guys that feel you better. are you are taking comfort from the flat fact that in the Flynn family they feel perfectly happy trafficking in ridiculous out-of-this-world conspiracy theories, um, and the, one of them got fired, but the other one has been made the principal national security <laughs> advisor of the president. you got to start small. You've got to start small, <laughs> David.
3: Well, <it's, laughs> one at a time. That's something,
1: I, think, I think they counted 16 such theories being tweeted out by Mike Flynn Sr. Julie, you've spent a considerable amount of time working in the National Security Council, does it worry you that people who traffic in such insanity would be in positions of authority there?
0: Of course it worries me. I mean, look, the National Security Advisor, they're not they are not at the Pentagon. They don't get military forces. They don't have planes. They don't have ships. The only thing the National Security Advisor gets as a big tool is words, a big basket of words, and words matter, and words have consequences. And allies and adversaries, they read every little sentence that is churned out in a public statement or any time the National Security Advisor goes on TV. All of that is read over and over, and everyone examines it around the world domestically and abroad for clues. And to have a National Security Advisor that's so loose with all of this fake news and conspiracy theories is, of course— deeply troubling. Um, you want someone who's taken seriously, who is focused like a laser on the threats this country faces, that is not prone to conspiracies. And what we've seen so far is terrifying, nothing short of terrifying. I don't know what else there is so, to say. but
1: Well, I think it is terrifying, but let me see if I can turn it up to 11 here by turning to Tom Ricks. Tom, you live in Maine home to those who don't visit Maine, of the largest population of loons in America. But in Maine, the loons are birds. Now, here in Washington, it seems like the loons are Trump administration officials. Where are there more loons, and which loons worry you the most?
2: The loons in Maine are competent, and Flynn is not competent, and I think that will be his undoing. Um, This guy's in over his head. I have every confidence that Mattis can be Secretary of Defense, that Kelly can be uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, that Pompeo can do whatever happens to CIA, where I just think basically they undermine civilian directors anyways. But I think Flynn is a loose cannon, and I hate to take away Rose's tiny sliver of light. <laughs> oh, uh, Stab me in the heart. <laughs> that that um, Here we have this really strange president-elect who doesn't. As far as I can tell, has never read a book in his life, and likely will be persuaded by whoever he talks to. And the person he's going to talk to is Mike Flynn, the guy who has the office there in the White House a few steps from the Oval Office. I,
3: I, I will. I can't resist telling one story about my one and only encounter with, with Mike Flynn, Tom, which you helped engineer. Uh, when Tom Ricks and Peter Bergen and I went over to the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, when General Flynn was running it uh, to talk about a project we were working on together. And we were, we were given the red carpet treatment and we met with General Flynn and all of his senior staff. And it was all very cordial and and a. Good discussion and at the end of the event we were presented as one often is in these settings with a with a lovely large ceremonial uh, military coin presented in a beautiful uh, wooden box and inscribed with our names and presented by General Mike Flynn uh, uh, for coming to speak at the DIA to Rosa Brooks, except the date on it was wrong. And I did think to myself, wait, this is the Defense Intelligence Agency and they can't get the date right on this beautiful keepsake item given by General Flynn. So that didn't bode a well. It was interesting day because it was the day that Flynn got fired. It was the day that – we have that effect on people, Tom. So we should just – that that that's what we need to do. You know, and I have that effect on people in general. I I, w- I went to visit the uh, Central Intelligence Agency back years ago on the day that Porter Goss got fired. So I'm thinking that all we need to do to fix the Trump administration, Tom, is you know, pay a visit to the White House at some point, and these guys are going to
1: be gone. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good idea. In fact, Rosa, on behalf of Foreign <laughs> Policy, I'd like to assign you to go and interview most of these people. Um, it's like a kiss of earliest... death. They get fired immediately <laughs> exactly. upon
3: talking to us.
1: It's like typhoid. Rosa, you know she shows up.
3: <laughs> it's incredible.
0: And,
1: and, and they're and they're done. How do you feel, Julie, being so close to Rosa? Is <laughs> I'm it slowly
0: backing away. I'm headed for the door
1: right now. Everybody, everybody has only it only, that, it only uh, happens well, to intelligence
3: effect. agency officials. It's it's okay. You're safe, Julie. Oh, few,
1: few. Yeah. Well. So look, I mean, I, we could go on and on about this. I do want those of you who don't regularly read the words of. Of of Tom, uh, who 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 said some pretty strong things during this this uh, episode, uh, to know that he's one of the coolest, most measured, thoughtful people I know on these issues. And if he says that this is nuts, it's because it's nuts. And while we sit here and on a regular basis try to intone in thoughtful ways about what's going on here, it's still nuts. And if you're not sure of that keep in mind that the underlying theme of this particular um, podcast seems to be that we're fortunate to have the military to step in and guide us in a way or protect us from the rapacious impulses of the uh, the oligarchs who have taken over our, um, our government. This, this is like Woody Allen's movie Bananas, or this is some third world fantasy, where the military is waiting in the wings and is there to guide um, people who we are just comfortable letting be corrupt, um, or seemingly comfortable. Paul Ryan, uh, not too long before this podcast began, said, well, I trust Donald Trump to take care of his own conflicts of interest in whatever way he wants. So we are really, really living in crazy times, folks. Uh, fortunately for you, you've discovered the ER, where we cut through that craziness, find the people who are most dangerous, and have them meet with Rosa. Um, <laughs> that's our—we don't, We don't just comment. We take action. Thank you, Tom Ricks in the land of the northern loons. Thank you, Rosa Brooks and Julie Smith in the land of the southern loons. We will join you again sometime soon for another episode of the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games.